This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, OK, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Troyan Podcast where we're looking back on 30 years since the famous series between Mead and Dublin, that famous preliminary round clash that turned out to be four of the greatest games in the history of the GA. Over the next couple of days on Independent.ie, we'll be looking back on those that incredible saga of games. Colm Keyes has a sit-down interview with Mead legends Mick Lyons and Liam Harnan, while Vincent Hogan sits down with Mead captain Liam Hayes and Dublin captain Tom Carr to look back at those famous games. Delighted today to be joined on a trip down memory lane by Mead legend Colm O'Rourke, Dublin legend Paul Kern and Independent.ie journalist Roy Curtis. Just starting off, lads, Colm, I'll start off with you. You were obviously beaten in the All-Ireland final the year previous. When you see a draw like this come out in a preliminary round, I believe uh, Dublin and Mead couldn't have actually met in a preliminary round for years before this, but the, the system was kind of scrapped and it was an open draw. When you get Dublin in the first round, what's the mood like in the camp? I think the mood was uh, we were sort of really uh, pissed off. Of course, you can't say that in a, a podcast probably, but... We're definitely cheesed off because we had sort of got used to the fact of uh, setting our calendars by the last Sunday in July, as it was at that time, and meet in Dublin would meet in the Leinster final. So it had been 86, 87, 88, 89, 90. So we had sort of hoped, I think, that maybe it would be six Leinster finals in a, a row. And that's the way we sort of set our summer clocks by. And then the next thing we turn around and see we're meeting Dublin in June and we were saying, ah, Jesus, now, that's not very fair. But uh, Leinster Council, I think, in their wisdom, decided to change the system that year and have an open draw rather than seeded. So we weren't happy with it, I think would be fair to say. Paul, from a Dublin point of view, you were obviously coming in as league champions. Uh, as I said, you'd met you'd met Mead so many times in the years previous. Like, when you see that draw coming out early in the year, like, it's... It's such a fixture, such it must be such nervousness to it as well, and it was that was probably uh, replicated on the pitch even the first day. It was quite ragged. Uh, I suppose both teams were nearly just afraid of going out with that first stage. There must have been an awful lot of nervousness behind the scenes. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know who picked out the draw, to be honest, or how it was done, because it was the first year, and all of a sudden with the two big hitters meeting in a prelim round, which was unusual. But like Colm, we were... We were a little bit upset with that with that draw. Um, I mean, we had our, our fill of mead at that stage for for a couple of years. We got a little bit lucky in '89 in the Leinster final, but mead were the dominant uh, team in Leinster, and uh, and it looked like that was going to continue. So 
look, we, we were we were a bit cheesed off as as Colin was, um, but what what unfolded was was incredible to be honest. I mean, we we got four matches out, but usually it's three to get to a Leinster final, and uh, I mean, it made the summer. Right, the two boys might have been a bit cheesed off, but from from your point of view and from our point of view in the journalism world, like we're licking our lips realistically. Yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, thirty years is a great river of time, but. For those of us who lived through it, you can still feel its pulverizing force. It was, it was this thing of nature that arrived. And I think context is very important. The previous year, Italian 90, and um, this sort of Vesuvian eruption of passion. And Jackie, even GA heartlands and strongholds were signing up for the Jackie's army thing. And there was, there was genuine anxiety within the GA. I mean, some even felt, I remember speaking to some people who felt this could pose an existential threat to what was going on in Gaelic football and hurling. And they really were desperate for a return to Broadway for a big show of their own. And then like a gift from the gods, this thing arrived. And I think people would struggle now to understand the force of what happened, but it was the, it was the conversation at the center of every room. For five weeks, there literally was nothing else. It led the front pages of newspapers. It led news bulletins. Everything that happened was magnified beyond imagining. I mean, I think I, I have the number written down here. There were 236,383 people paid into this. There were 11 goals, 95 points. And at the end of it all, a point between the teams. I mean, it really was the equivalent of a single pixel in a photo finish at the end of around the world yacht race. You know, it was, it was that engaging. It was that engrossing. It was that compelling. And it really was the birth of the modern GA in some ways. Uh, the Leinster Council were actually after building their uh, their council offices in Port Leash, and I think they were they were talking about going to an auctioneer to put them up for sale because there'd only been ten thousand. I think Colin, you played in the Leinster football final year before. I think there was only ten thousand added. It was a mid Italian ninety. I think awfully played in the Leinster hurling final in ninety as well. There was only I think there was only eight thousand when they played Kilkenny the day Ireland were playing Egypt. Like the GA was kind of reeling at the time. So they, they really, really needed it. 1.1 million was uh, from these four games was the gate receipts. That was bigger than any total uh, that they'd had for the total Leinster Championship before this. So it's, it's outstanding. Just a quick one, Colin, before we get into the matches themselves. Uh, ye had trained uh, quite peculiarly, I'd say, in the build-up to that 91 Championship. Uh, Sean Boylan has kind of been on the record as saying that a lot of Mead's training was done uh, in water. In the build-up to the 1991 championship, he, I think he he sourced some buoyancy aids from uh, Jerry O'Reilly from Dunboyne, who was an Olympic athlete. Can you just talk me through that? Uh, I know Jerry McAdee said to said to Sean one time, "How are you going to look the people of Mead in, in the eyes when when you tell them we've been training in water <laughs> when we get knocked out of the Leinster championship?" Can you just talk me through that? It was quite unorthodox. Yeah, well, I suppose context as Roy has set there was important. Like it was pre-mobile phones, and like it was a different world really. And uh, uh, as you said too, the crowds at the Leinster matches the year previously were very small. I think we played the Leinster semi-final. There wasn't virtu virtually nobody at it. So that was uh, the way. And uh, Sean, I think, had decided that uh, the team was more close to being finished. Like, there was quite a few of us in our 30s at that stage. Like, I, was, I was 34. And uh, like Jerry McIntyre, who came on for the last two games, he'd have been 36. Joe Castles was Right, Joe Castles was gone. Mick Lyons was over 30. Liam Harn was over 30. Like, there was a lot of fellas. You wouldn't have it in the modern game, so many fellas. 
uh, with uh, age on the side and a lot of injuries as well because those dirty Dublin whores had <laughs> injured us very badly over the previous five years and they were total bullies when it came to those sort of games so we felt their wrath and, and the brunt of their force and I, I had an operation on my ankle earlier in that year some other fellas were struggling with knees and hips and different things and uh, the grounds were very hard and Sean decided that instead of the normal sort of football, he bought these buoyancy aids. Again, he, he was always trying something different. He was always unusual, always different. And uh, there was some Norwegian skier, I think at the time, or somebody that he read about that had uh, knee or hip injury and they decided that they'd get the buoyancy aid and we'd run the pool. And we did that. We went over to Garmiston College and we did a lot of work in the pool, running in the pool with these buoyancy aids. Now, we looked <laughs> it looked really stupid in the swimming pool, and that's why Jerry McAtee said that to Sean. But again, he got it right, and he had us fresh, and we were well. We hadn't played that much football, and things weren't going well in our camp before the first game. Certainly weren't, and I'd say confidence was quite low, and we were very lucky to get a draw in that game. As we were, I think, in nearly all the games. Just a quick one on that column. I know Liam Hayes has said that uh, you're obviously uh, former clubmates. He said you didn't talk for about 10 days before the first game. So things must have been going too well before going into that game. Well, Liam didn't talk to most of the team for about five years. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. That was sort of standard practice for him. But uh, he was the captain of that year. And anyway, oh, yeah, things were strained and people were grouchy and there were... We had a, a, a game the Sunday before the Dublin match, a sort of A versus B, and oh, it didn't go well. And everybody seemed to be crabby and giving out and complaining. And it probably looked as if the whole house was beginning to sort of collapse around us. But I think Liam Hayes had an outstanding match in that first uh, first game. And he, he sort of carried me when we were very bad, uh, struggling very badly in that match. Just on the, on the first game, Paul, um, it's probably one of three games that you probably think you should have won realistically. You were probably, there was probably one game there where, where Mead were probably the better side, but realistically, particularly that first game, you probably thought you should have been winning that game. Yeah, I mean, unlike Mead, I think things were going quite well for us. I mean, we were fairly confident and, you know, there was a, a good mood in the camp and I suppose, unlike Mead, we had a, a younger set of players. I mean, I was only in the, the, the squad two years at that time. And um, so, so confidence was, was high. We played quite well. I mean, the games did, did you know, go to and fro a lot. Um, but I think we were dominant in, in, in three of them. And we probably should have closed out um, that first one. Um, but McDegan was caught in possession coming out and uh, PJ Gillick was able to, 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 to score a point. It might have ended up in the goal as well and we might have lost that game. So I think in the end, um, after the first game, I think both teams were reasonably happy to have another go at it and still be in the Leinster Championship. Um, but we didn't, we didn't think for a second that we'd be keep going for five weeks. It was extraordinary, really. There was obviously great drama at the end of the first game. I know PJ Gillick had that chance. And I, I don't know how it went over the bar. It's obviously the, the harder surface maybe caused the bounce to, to go a little bit higher. But uh, Roy, the, the drama of the first day, um, it was, as I said, it was a bit of an arm wrestle. Uh, there was a lot of kind of ner nerves on show, but like little did we realise what, what was going to come and what that, that was going to set up. 
Exactly. It's funny. I, I was looking back over a couple of the games yesterday. I actually don't remember the games as details. I just remember them as this overwhelming sensory experience. It was just this green and blue war that seemed to go on. And there was stuff I thought happened in game two that I discovered happened in game three. Um, and really, I think the iconic moments came with that Gillick uh, point in game one and obviously with the madness of, um, of game four, where you had Kevin Foley, a man who basically lived his life at the edge of the photograph, a defender who very rarely crossed the halfway line, suddenly scoring a goal that equalizes again. And you can actually detect an audible gasp of shock from Hill 16, not knowing it's about to get much worse. Mead Pilfer, the kick out, and Jinxie Beggy, um, as skinny as a whip at him with the same torque, had left his guitar in the dressing room this time, but he found a moment of music and put the ball over. And when the game finishes, it's incredible. People don't know quite how to react because this thing has teethed their consciousness. It's become a center point of their life. And I think with the Mead players, you saw some hugging, but they looked mentally and emotionally shattered. And I think there was also huge respect for the people, the vanquished. These were two armies who'd gone to war and there really was a sense that they'd experienced something together. You read about old soldiers from opposing sides and battlefields getting together afterwards because only they truly understand the experience that they've shared. And I think there was elements of that. I've good friends on both teams. I've sat down and listened to them talk and they really are old soldiers going back over a time that was life-changing for them, life-changing for the games they played. I mean, this... This contest completely dwarfed some of the great All-Ireland finals. A lot of people forget Down won the All-Ireland that year. Mead the following week had to go out and play Wicklow and Drew again. Um, Bernard Flynn's masterclass in the second half of the All-Ireland final wasn't enough to get them over the line against Down. But the game that lives in the memory, the four games that live in the memory, I think if you ask anybody, maybe outside Seamus Darby's goal that stops the five in a row or Stephen Cluxton's point against Kerry, those four games as an entity were just iconic and uh, transformative for the GA. Paul, you mentioned uh, Mick Deegan being dispossessed in the first game and then obviously Vinny Murphy had a chance to probably win the second game. There were so many uh, different guys that uh, that maybe could have finished the game. And I often wonder, like years later, are, are you still getting on to these boys about, you know, this chance you missed and this kind of thing? Because I, I know that that's the, that's the kind of thing that happens in the GA and in sports teams as well. Well, presumed it'd still be a good bit of slagging and that between lads about missing chances. And just we could have, we could have been finished the first day if you'd just done this or that. Yeah, well, I think lockdown has given these fellas a bit of a reprieve. Um, we haven't seen too many of them in the last 14, 15 months. But you know, I mean, you go back to, to Vinny's chance in the second game and, and like Roy, you forget the moment. Um, you forget what happened. You mix up the games because there were so many of them. There were so many things happened. Uh, but Vinny really should have just punched the ball over the bar and the game was over. And um, We'd have I, no fun then though, Paul. You know what I mean? No, but, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of great... When it was over, it was interesting. It was, it was, for us, it was like a... Like a marriage breakup, nearly. You know, you got to you got to know these fellas so well, and um, you know it was over. All of a sudden, it was it was the end. Um, but a couple a couple of funny things. I mean, it was there's great funny stories from the from the uh, the four games. You know, I was I was still in the early years of trying to establish a place um, uh, in the team, so I was basically all over the place. I played in the first game midfield. Uh, the second game, I was played left half forward. The third game, I was actually dropped for. 
And uh, between the third game and the fourth game, we had a, a video anal analysis uh, session on the Tuesday. Now, this is 30 years ago. So it was the VHS recorder. And if you needed to go back on something, you'd have to record and wait or rewind and wait. But anyway, in the in the in the first couple of minutes of the of the session, um, Paddy Cullen was going crazy about the the just shape up front. And I, I played left half forward in the in the second game, but dropped for the third game. So so he went on and on and on, and he just looked no shape. The ball keeps going in, it's coming back. Where are the half forwards? And I was sitting down the back and he said, Paul Corn, where were you? And I said, sitting beside you, Paddy. <laughs> and, and that that was the end of that that particular session. Uh, you know, people that the players coiled up and um, but the, look, it, it was it was a fantastic moment. We're talking about it thirty years later, which says says enough, you know. Yeah, just uh, before the fourth game, Colm, uh, you actually went to Scotland. Uh, it's a, a mad kind of a thing to think. There was two weeks between the between the third game and the fourth game. You ended up in a, a village called Drymen. I think it's where the where the comedian Billy Connolly is from. And Sean Boylan has always said, I'm in no doubt, but that we wouldn't have beaten Dublin were it not for that trip to Scotland. No question in the world. Now, I'm sure that it might have been thrown up as the reason why you did lose if you had lost. It's funny how the narrative can change, but can you just talk to me about that? It's um, it's not something you'd imagine you'd see now in the GA, but I suppose he was trying to freshen you up or maybe even take your minds off it. Yeah, again, Sean does things differently and he, he had done the same thing before the 88 replay. We went up to Carlingford <clears throat> for a bit of training, but ended up drinking for most of the weekend a week before the All-Ireland. And, you know, if it was done nowadays, uh, players wouldn't be able to explain away it and somebody would be taking photographs of them. And we went to, I remember, we went to a nightclub in Carlingford, you know, one week before the All-Ireland, we were the last to leave it at about four o'clock in the morning. Like, this sort of things, you know, that happened then. I, I, I feel sorry for players that they can't live like we did and, we, and they can't have the sort of mad fun because somebody would be around with a phone and would send it and the context of it would be wrong. So uh, we, we went over to Drim and, uh, and Sean was, went on a, on a reconnaissance mission over there with Noel Keaton. God be good to him. He was a wonderful friend to meet in Keepak and decided we went over there. And sure, it turned out we did a bit of training, but we did a lot of other things and we had a bit of crack and we had drinks and we ended up with a big sing song on the Saturday night. And sure, we weren't able to train the following day. So Sean was like that. He didn't sort of mind. You know, when I look now on teams with our drink bands and the don't do this and the don't do this, Sean Boylan wouldn't survive in modern management because he expected everybody to sort of do the right thing and look after themselves. He treated people as adults and didn't put anybody. I don't think he ever mentioned drinking once in my time with him. And I think that was the secret of his success. And we had a great weekend. We had a bit of fun and we came home and relaxed. But like if we had to lose, everybody would say that was a stupid thing to do to go away. But he always trusted his, his in instincts and you know, that we, we had got so close and uh, it had gone, I think, from a sort of a bit of antipathy in the beginning with Mead in Dublin to absolute respect in the end. And I actually haven't spoken to Paul any time I mean, I never would speak to the Dublin players about the games because I would have been absolutely devastated 
and it would have left a mark on me for the rest of my life if we had to lose those games. And I never felt inclined to bring it up with Dublin players ever again because we went on then and lost the final to down. And that rankles to this very day when you speak to Mead players. So I can just imagine, like the last thing in the world they want to do is to have a Mead man talking to them about 91. And that's purely out of respect. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, Paul, I'm just wondering, did you do anything similar between any of the games in 91? Or was it just this, this video session? Yeah, no, it was pr- pretty standard from game to game, training, uh, some sort of video work, uh, team chats. But we never we never got away. Um, and I think it's interesting listening to Colm there talking about the great man, um, Sean, Sean Boylan, I mean, he's, he's, he's done it over a couple of generations, but I think, I think I'd love to see the game going back. Um, you know, life has become very serious and football has mirrored life. You know, it's, I, I don't see the enjoyment with players um, as much as we enjoyed. Now, I, look, we don't want them going to the pub every single night, but I think, um, you know, one of the things that I try and do uh, in management is give them plenty of mini breaks and get them back to their family and their friends and, you know, get back doing what they want to do and come back fresh. And I think that's very important. I think we've become very robotic in, in, in ways, you know, everything is 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 according to the, the, the time, um, the clock, you know, you're on the clock the whole time. Um, everything is recorded and... Uh, you know, there, a lot of players obviously enjoy that and that's the way it's gone. But, um, you know, I, I'd love to transport a few of them back to the, the 90s and, and let them have a taste of what we went through. I'd say they'd, uh, I'd say they'd want to live back in the 90s if they could now, maybe mm-hmm. compared to the times now. Uh, Roy, Colm mentioned uh, key pack there and one of the interesting kind of developments throughout the, throughout the four games was uh, Mead's sponsor actually changed for the third game so they were sponsored by O'Reilly Transport for the first two games and then Keypack is on their jerseys thereafter and I think that was a, a partnership that they maintained up until about 2006 and obviously Arnott's I think was a small little crest on the Dublin jersey for the second one and then all of a sudden it was emblazoned across the front of it and I know Tommy Carr said about they didn't want to be uh, they were getting photo- photographs taken to promote and things like that and that's the last thing they wanted in the build up to the games but isn't that just a sign like yeah, how how that it nearly spawned this big advertisement bubble within the GA as well, and all these big businesses getting involved. This was just this was just how box office this series was. Yeah, it was transformative in in so many ways. As with as with Noel Keating, and um, Dublin had a great relationship with Bill Kelly and Arnott's, and um, he would have been very close to the players and understood what was going on. But it opened commercial avenues for the GA that had never really been embraced before. There was a suspicion of commercial behaviour. There was a suspicion of live television, of matches. There was a feeling that live television could kill the games. Um, and suddenly this, the, the, the fourth game was the first Saturday match ever shown by RTE. And um, it had a vast and huge audience. And again, as I say, coming off the back of Italia 90, um, it really gave the GA the foothold again and the confidence to realise that they needn't fear other stuff, that they had a product um, and they had personalities. I think it's really, really interesting what the two guys said there. Those players at those time, they were laden down with personalities. There were guys who were allowed to express themselves. Now, as Paul says, there's a, robot, a robotic approach. We almost lock the personality in the boot. We don't allow people to be adults, and yet we expect them to step onto a pitch and seize a moment and be adults in those times. And it's 
sport is ultimately about joy. It's about transporting you to another place. And those teams did that then. Still my most vivid memory, very differently then, journalists were also allowed into the dressing rooms after the games. And walking in to the Dublin dressing room, maybe 45 minutes after the game, it was um, a sensory overload. People have compared it to a funeral, but it wasn't because at a, at a funeral, people sympathize and they hug and they whisper condolences and they remember the departed. This, this was a postcard from where broken men reside. There, I'll always remember, you mentioned Tom Carr and I remember Charlie Redmond and they were still in full battle fatigues, head, head bowed, just incapable of comprehending the sort of paradise loss that had been seized away. And as Colm said, I can understand exactly why he'd be loath to speak to it, speak of it to, to Dublin players, because to, to lose something that has become everything in your life and to have it seized away in that fashion, that may sound like dramatic talk, having just said it's only sport, but it was something elemental and visceral. And I think that's why people related to it. You were watching a box set over four weeks of something as compelling as we'd ever seen, a human drama. There was something very human about it. And I think all great sport, all great drama touches people at a level beyond the conscious. It actually touches your heart and then reaches your soul. And those games did that. I've, I've covered many Olympics and World Cups and Ryder Cups. I don't remember anything that touched the competitors and the audience as profoundly as, um, as those four games did. And the, I suppose the relationships that the two squads have kept up since is probably a, a, a sign of that. I think he played golf, column most years, did he, for a long time after that? Probably the last couple of years, not so much. As Paul was saying, I haven't seen a lot of the Mead players even in the last sort of 18 months either. And we used to have a very close relationship. We'd play golf on a regular basis. But the way things have gone, we don't see much of each other anymore. Hopefully that will change now. But, you know, there was a close bond between both teams. And I, my recollection of the whole thing, the, the one word that I would use to describe it was manliness. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to denigrate the modern generation, but I looked at some of those games and I haven't looked at them recently, but I, I, I recall dirty hits, hard hits, half dirty hits, and nobody complained. And everybody just got up and got on with it. And there was nobody shouting at the referee looking for somebody to get a, a yellow card or a red card. Or I don't even know where they were at the time. I can't, I can't recall. They probably weren't even red cards at the time. But nobody ever, ever, ever tried to take advantage of the situation. And it was very honest. And it was a lot of really bad football at times too. I think we should say that. It, it wasn't sort of vintage stuff. There was lots of muck in it. But... People went out, it was man, man on man, it was a sort of very honest type of play and uh, I think the sort of mutual respect for players uh, grew as the thing went on and uh, Roy was making the point about the games but I, I can still recall the atmosphere in the dressing room before the, the last match and I don't think I've ever been in a dressing room where the tension was as high as in those sort of 20, 25 minutes before we left the dressing room, I can still recall that, that nobody nearly spoke. Absolute silence, because everybody knew this is it. Paul, after everything he put on the line, as Colm says, there's the nervousness of it all, nearly six hours of action. I think he had to go to a civic reception after with the, with the Mead players. Like, 
I present like it's the last place you want to be in the world, I presume. Yeah, and uh, it didn't end too well either. Um, we we went to the mansion house, and uh, our manager at the time made a, a bit of a speech that cost him his job that that night. You know, um, but look, it it it's something that we we probably were obliged to do, and um, we didn't hang around too long. Uh, we ended up in different parts of Dublin and. Uh, painted the town red um but look you know it's as as, as colin said the the football wasn't great at times but there was always great moments uh, in the games and always i mean the, some of the footballers were some of the greats um and you know it was a, it was a very special special occasion on 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 four particular occasions and uh, it was great to be part of to be honest with you um we've thankfully got over it uh, at last and we're happy happy to talk about it. Colm, just look. I'm glad, Paul, you've got over it because I still can't get over some of the big games I, I was involved in that we lost. But you talk about, still toss and you talk about taking belts. You know, yeah, you, you expected to, to get a belt or two in those matches. And I remember the fourth game, I was actually back in, in the starting lineup, and I was picked at centre forward, marking uh, Liam Harnan, and the ball was thrown in. And I took a little run into midfield. It went over the, the the four lads in midfield, and I picked it up and hand passed it off. And the ball ended up going dead. Uh, we didn't get a score, and Nicky McQuillan kicked the ball out. And as it was sailing over my head, I got this merciful belt into the ribs, and it was I, it was. Liam didn't say anything to you. It was basically saying, "Don't be going near that ball again." <laughs> and, that, and that was the that was the message. But you expected it, and you got on with it. Adam, just a word on that on that fourth game, and I suppose the the concluding moments. Um, was it, was there something just ingrained in you that that you never felt you were beaten, even though like you were dominated in that game realistically, and somehow managed to to stay clinging it, clinging on. Like what what was that that was ingrained in you that made you believe that Kevin Foley could go up and get the goal, and then the, when Jinxie Beggy got the chance, made you believe that he could score. What was ingrained in you? Well, I think that comes from people's personality and their characteristics as people. And you know, we'd have been a pretty thick bunch of fellas. You know, we. We hadn't come up on easy street. There was a lot of farmers and tradesmen and um, coming from big families back down the line. So, like, we, we had all grown up in, in a much different type of environment than uh, young people nowadays. And I think a person's own personality comes out on the football pitch just as it does in, in life. And, you know, the, the likes of the, um, the Lionses and... Uh, Liam Harnan and Terry Ferguson and Jerry McIntyre. A lot of us came from either building stock or farming stock. And I think that it brought in a little bit of sort of toughness into our personality. And uh, I suppose Sean had this great sense that you never gave in, that you, you gave all of yourself on the pitch. And uh, when it was over then, if that wasn't good enough, then so be it. We all accepted that. But there was never a sense that you should ever, ever, ever drop your head uh, or, or, uh, or give in in any way. Like, in reality, uh, Dublin probably should have won the fourth game by six, eight, ten points. I think that would have been a, probably a fair reflection on the course of the game. And I suppose we it, it was complete and absolute larceny, 
larceny at the end to get a goal and, and they get, get a point. And it was the only way that we could have won that match. It was just to hang in long enough and to, to sort of pull the trap door at the very end. Because like if that game went to extra time, we'd have lost because we were a spent force. And just going on, looking at the rest of the year, then after that column, like how much did that take take out of you? Like, uh, it didn't take much out of us. Apart the following week against Wicklow, we were completely flat because uh, you know you can't go to a high like that in in any sport without having to come down. And a week is always too short a time in football. You need a fortnight after big games, uh, whether you win or lose, to to, to sort of come back down and. But for the rest of the year, it was easier then because we did very little training. It's the way football should be. Uh, more games and less training. It's the model that we should have in the game. And I hope that we learn from this year too, where we have plenty of games in the summer and we bring in a model, get rid of Leinster Championships or Ulster Championships and play a league-style championship, which gives every county plenty of games during the summer so that they're playing matches and not this endless, boring training session. So we went back to the pool and we did one night a week sort of football. And we had fantastic crack because that's the way it should be in football. We really had enjoyment out of it. And we would, Sean never killed us training then after that. The training, training was very, very light. And of course, everything was set fair until we ran into down. So that's the, like, we did get invited to down functions uh, to glorify 91. And I, I sit through them with sort of gritted teeth and that's why I'm always conscious of it with the Dublin players, because I'd say they say to themselves, we never want to probably hear of 91 ever again. Uh, Roy, just a quick word on, on Tommy Howard, uh, the man in the middle for the, for the four games. I think there was a brilliant incident. I think it was in the, in the second, oh, there was a couple of incidents. In the second game, Mick Lyons was sent off. And I think Sean Boylan uh, had conversations with Tommy about whether they could bring on a 15th man. And he didn't think they could. And then Sean Boylan went to officials under the Hogan stand. And eventually they could bring on a 15th man. I think they brought uh, Liam Harnham back on. And then there was the brilliant incident where he was going looking for Keith Barr. And despite having spent so much time with him, probably more than some family members, he, co- he couldn't find him or couldn't recognise his face. Just a word on him. Um, that obviously that rule obviously changed probably not long after, but he was such a pivotal part of the whole the whole series of games as well. He was. I think he got the uh, the nickname the equalizer as a consequence of it. Um, it. It showed how profoundly things were changing. That we were in uncharted territory. That the referees themselves didn't know the rules, didn't know what was going on, whether you could bring guys on. But I mean, I, I think Tommy became a personality whether he wanted to or not. And it was a very, very difficult and pressurized situation for him because every call you made at the closing minutes, over the closing minutes of a game, had huge consequence. And in games that really there was only a fingernail between the teams, a decision he made at any one moment could swing the game one way or other. I'd say he's very grateful that this was in an age long, long before social media because the type of stuff that would have gone as a consequence of every time he blew his whistle, would probably not have been too pleasant for him at all. Uh, lads, just we're, co- we're coming towards the end. Paul, if I were to say to you, 30 years on, looking back at this series, like what are your overriding emotions, overriding feelings, or what do you remember most from it all? Oh, just uh, to be honest, glad to be part of it. You know, to, to have played a, a small part in it was, is enough for me at this stage. You know, I mean, those games will, will never be forgotten, whether... You know, somebody had to, to, to win, somebody had to lose at the end of the day. Um, 
you know, I'm just grateful that I was around playing football at the time and the enjoyment we got training, the enjoyment we got away from the game. Um, you know, it was it was a great time to play football. Colin, same question for you. What's the what's the first thing you think of looking back or the first memory? I'm glad I survived because Eamon Heary and Keith Barr tried to make sure that I didn't survive the first couple of minutes of the <clears throat> fourth game. So that <laughs> I've done well to survive as well as possible without uh, any obvious side effects. But uh, I think the, the joy of being involved and uh, I, I will always remember the Saturday evening. It was a beautiful summer Saturday evening, the sort of massive outpouring of emotion in Mead. In places we we uh, ended up in Dunboyne and we came through Dunshockland place. Paul would know his father was a star for Dunshockland for many years, and all the people out on the streets and celebrating and this sort of quiet air of satisfaction. Yet absolute respect for the vanquished. That's brilliant, lads. Thanks a million for taking a trip down memory lane. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. It was very nice. That's it for this episode of the Trojan Podcast, where we were looking back on 30 years since the famous Mead Dublin saga. Don't forget to tune in to independent.e over the next couple of days for loads of engaging content around the famous games. In the Sunday Independent, John Green will recall how the game sparked the GA into life and lifted it back into the public's good graces. While on Monday, Frank Roach talks to Jura Canning, the RTE broadcaster, who was in the hot seat for those four games. I'll be back with Will Slattery on Monday's show where we are reviewing all the Allianz Hurling League action over the weekend.